You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God in heaven, we come to you now praying that you would speak to us by your word, uh, that we might uh, actually see uh, what you're doing in the life of your people, especially by and through your son, Jesus. Uh, even here in Exodus 12, Lord, that you would open our eyes uh, to uh, the glory uh, that we see in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're only going to look at Exodus 12 this week, and then next week we're going to bite off a big chunk and go, I think, even uh, chapters 13 um, uh, through, well, we're going to, there's a bunch of law uh, in there that we're going to we're going to cover, and, uh, and then we will finish up uh, on, on time. Uh, but we're at Exodus 12, uh, the Passover, uh, which most of us are probably familiar with. Um, we're, we're familiar with it, whether because uh, we've, uh, we have Jewish friends uh, or uh, because of our own uh, faith, uh, because in what context was the Last Supper had with Jesus and his disciples? It was a Passover meal. It was a Passover meal. And has anyone actually been to uh, a Seder feast? Um, yeah, a good number of you. Um, I, I hope that those of you who have done that were making notes and comparing as you read Exodus 12, uh, because there are some real differences, um, and um, uh, both good and bad, that are uh, on display here in Exodus 12. But in Exodus 11... God commands Moses to go tell Pharaoh to warn him of the final plague. And that final plague is in verse uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 4. About midnight, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So that's the promise that God makes uh, to uh, Pharaoh. And, um, and what uh, is Pharaoh's response? And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so then the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, uh, once again, and gives them uh, instructions on how this is all going to go down. Uh, I, the real focus is not so much the meal uh, as it is uh, what the meal represents and what God is doing. Remember, the meal is a sign. Uh, Exodus is God's picture book that tells us the story of his redemption. Right? So it's not just about the meal, it's what the meal represents. And I'm not sure that you could actually enjoy the meal because what's happening while the Israelites are eating the meal? Such a night as has never been seen nor will be seen again. The screaming, the wailing. It's just horrific uh, to think uh, of these things. And uh, what we see is that uh, in this though, as horrific as it is, and this is based on some of the questions we had last week, uh, God's judgment is non-discriminatory. So even uh, later on in chapter 11, uh, at the tail end after I had just read, when, uh, when the Lord says, um, 
But not a dog shall growl, this is verse 7, not a dog shall growl against my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes the distinction between Egypt and Israel. And he's not talking about the political states of Egypt and Israel. He's talking about the spiritual states. And we talk about it in those terms, don't we? When we say, like, and then they're in the wilderness and they talk about looking back to Egypt, are they looking back to the nation state or are they looking back to a spiritual reality? A spiritual reality that existed while they were in Egypt. When we say, well, we're going back to Egypt, what we're saying is that we would rather have the comforts of Egypt without God than to sacrifice the comfort of Egypt but to be in the wilderness with God. So here, God is not saying, if you're Egyptian, you're done. If you are an Israelite, you're going to be saved. Because ultimately, what we see is that what saves a person in the Passover is what? The blood. The blood of land. So let's look at the instructions that the Lord gives Moses and Aaron. Tell all the congregation of Israel... That on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, I'm not going to, we're going to get into that in a minute. And you do all of these things. You take the lamb, uh, kill the lamb at twilight, and then you shall take some of the blood, this is verse 7, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then he gives more instructions, especially how to cook it. You're, you're to roast it, not to boil it or do or eat it raw. Uh, you're to roast it intact. Right? You're not to, to, to dress it. You, you just roast it with the organs, everything in it. Uh, and why is he saying that? You're in a hurry. You're in a hurry. And, uh, and, and you'll be, uh, remember that terrible movie? What was the one with John Candy? Um, where he has, he's in the steak-eating competition, the old 49er, and he has the, the great outdoors with Dan Aykroyd. I knew, Fred, you would know that. Um, and he eats 49 ounces of steak, but really doesn't want to... He gets to the end, and it's just fat and gristle, and they say, no, you got to eat it. Well, the Lord doesn't say that here. The Lord says, in fact, when you get to the next morning, whatever is left over, you should burn it. You should burn it. And in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Do you hear that again? Not just the Egyptians, in all of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. Again, this is a spiritual attack. right? It's not just, I hate the Egyptians. But it's a judgment against who? The gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Right? This is a, this is a precursor to the first commandment. Um, you shall have no other gods but me. I am a jealous God. The blood shall be a sign for you on the households where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, uh, this image of the Passover is not just used uh, here. Uh, it's used time and time again. The same idea being um, that 
There is mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's mercy in this God who is going to bring his people out of Egypt. And all you have to do is throw yourself upon him. And so it wouldn't be true to say, well, God just really hates the Egyptians. No, he hates the Egyptian gods. He hates the idolatry. He hates the sin. And there's nothing that prevents the Egyptians from coming into the house that is marked with blood, except for one thing, which is probably the worst sin of all, self-righteousness, pride. They simply will not do it. They disbelieve God's word. Surely God won't do that, in spite of the fact that they'd seen God do all these other wonderful miracles. Uh, and they put their trust in other gods. Uh, or, as I was referencing before, they're simply content to go along their way thinking God really wouldn't do something like that, when in fact God said, no, that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's the same principle he uses when they get to uh, the River Jordan and they look over and see Jericho, and they send spies into Jericho. And who do they meet up with? Rahab. And what's Rahab's profession, Jane? She's a prostitute. And in uh, Jericho, which you can go to today, uh, look, for Jericho to look good, you have to wander 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, it, it cannot be the promised land. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's right where the Jordan enters into the Dead Sea. It's in the wilderness where Jesus goes out. It's very, uh, it's, it's right where um, John the Baptist was baptizing. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Uh, and so it's not, you know, our stained glass windows have the baptism of John and, and it's sort of lilies and things. That's not what it looks like. There are reeds in the River Jordan, but it is, it's, it's terrible. And uh, so when they go in, there's this city of Jericho, and uh, we learned this when we were kids, as they were, and what came tumbling down? The walls of Jericho came. Now, these actually were not, an archaeological evidence points to this, and, and it affirms what the Bible says. The walls are not just walls, like that you would see around a fort or something like that, or that you'd put around your own house. The walls had homes built into them, right? So it was a fortified city, but, you know, when you talk about the walls, it's your window that you're looking out and looking down, and there's the, there's the outside right there. And so when the spies come in and Rahab brings them in, God in his mercy says that anybody who is in Rahab's apartment in her house, uh, I will save them. And Rahab hangs what out of her window? A scarlet cord, right, which reminds us of the blood, right? The scarlet cord. Uh, incidentally, uh, do you know what Thomas Cranmer did uh, at Lambeth Palace when he was the Archbishop of Canterbury? In the same thing. Same thing. He he had a scarlet cord, and actually, if you look at my study, there's a scarlet cord hanging out uh, to remind people of that as well. Uh, and so, it didn't matter who was in Rahab's apartment whether it was a prostitute or whether it was someone that frequented her as a prostitute, if you were in her apartment when the walls came tumbling down, guess what happened? It turns out not all the wall came tumbling down. There was one little section that belonged to Rahab, and that part of the wall stood. And so moving forward, we, we, 
throughout uh, the Bible, we see this imagery. Uh, earlier on, even in Genesis, we get an echo of it uh, or a, a precursor to it. Uh, Noah in the ark. Right? What's to prevent anyone from getting on the ark? Unbelief. Unbelief. And I realize it would have been hard for people to want to get on the ark because there's, you know, it doesn't say, I think it probably did happen, but people will often say, well, there's actually no record of it raining during human existence before the ark. Have you ever noticed that in Genesis? Now, I think that it did rain, uh, but nonetheless, if it didn't, that would make it even harder. But certainly to rain enough to flood the earth, that was just an unbelievable thing, and, Mo and Noah looked foolish. But everybody was, in, I mean, Noah told everybody, this is what's going to happen. No one got on the ark, no one built an ark of their own, and they perished in the flood of, by their own choosing. And so in the same way here, uh, God is saying that anyone who's in the house that is covered by the blood will be saved. Will be saved. Now, the Lord visits uh, them, and while they're eating uh, this food, um, God continues uh, to tell them uh, that this shall be a memorial for you, a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, it's very hard for us if you've ever been part of a Seder feast or to think about uh, the um, to think about the Passover now to really know what it means to really, really think about it. I guess the closest thing to it would have been, um, you know, someone who is Jewish now and lived through the Holocaust in Germany. For them, it was a reality uh, that, that they lived through. And so, yes, it's celebratory on the one hand that it showed God's mercy and deliverance, uh, but that's a memory you're never going to be able to get out of your mind. And, uh, and to this day, uh, Jewish people the world over continue uh, to, to do this. Obviously, the tradition has evolved, so more things have been added to it. Some things have been taken away, um, although one of the things they still do, uh, verse 26, uh, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. No discrimination. No discri whether you're, sitting in the, you're the firstborn sitting in the dungeon, or whether you're sitting on Pharaoh's throne, judgment comes to us all. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh rose up in the middle of the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my, among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. Bless me also. And then off they went with urgency. 
And of course, they're already ready because how does Moses tell them, how does God tell Moses to tell them how to dress? Right. It's like the Von Trapp family at the end of Sound of Music, right? They have their travel clothes on. They're ready to go uh, when the Lord says it's time to go. Now, again, remember that Exodus is a picture book. Shadows and types that point to the ultimate reality of Jesus. And so where this image is a powerful one in the Old Testament, things like Noah and the Ark, the Passover, Rahab's apartment, uh, it's also an image that's used in the New Testament. And so what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus walking in the wilderness? Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And writing to the church in Corinth, Paul himself says, Christ, O our Passover, is sacrificed for us. All of this is pointing to Jesus. Okay, so let's look at the feast itself and what God is doing, and I especially want to look at the lamb. The first thing I want us to notice about the lamb is that the lamb must match the requirements of God. So in chapter 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So God is saying that there's a particular kind of lamb that must be used. And what kind of, what are the requirements that God has for this lamb? No blemish. Male, one year old, young, without blemish. Can be a sheep or a goat. Don't get bogged down in that. That doesn't mean anything. Um, uh, it just, it just, it, the without blemish is the important, uh, is the important factor in all of this. And so God is saying there's a very particular kind of lamb uh, that you need to be sacrificing. Now, this is also uh, an echo a bit of what happened with Cain and Abel. Remember that back in Genesis? I keep asking that, but the fact of the matter is nobody reads their Bible anymore, so I don't know why I asked that. Uh, but when Cain and Abel uh, were, uh, were presenting to the Lord, uh, Abel presented what? Right, yeah, the, the, right, the, the best one, the one that God required. And Cain? Leftovers. Leftovers, right? There's the service now that gives you deformed-looking vegetables that nobody would ever buy. I think they should just call it, like, Cain's Vegetable Company. Um, uh, they're on the cheap, and it's stuff the grocery stores won't take because you look at it, you think a squash is not supposed to look like that. But it's still a squash, but that's exactly what was happening. And, uh, and so God says, no, I have a very specific requirement. And so if you think that you're going to come in with a, with a lamb that is blemished, what would have happened? The God, uh, God would not have passed over. He would not have passed over. Because he's very clear about what it is that he requires. And we're always trying to find a substitute for the real sacrifice. Even when uh, Abraham took Isaac uh, up to uh, sacrifice him, what did he bring along? Nothing. But he kept saying what? The Lord will provide. Now, 
Um, and on the one hand, that's a real prayer that Abraham is making to God, please don't make me do this. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Abraham is praying upon praying that there has to be another way than what God has required. And we do that in our lives too, don't we? I mean, when, when Abraham was coming out of um, uh, Ur, uh, one of the things that Sarah packed in her luggage was what? Household idols. Household idols. And we do that often, like, God, I know that this is what you require. I know that this is what you say will be the satisfaction for my sin, but I'm going to go ahead and hedge my bets sometimes as well. This is what Peter said to Jesus right after Caesarea Philippi, where, G where Peter says to Jesus, you're this Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Peter, uh, what you say is true. And upon this faithful pronouncement, I am going to build my church. And from here on, your name is Rock. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem and the son of man has to be handed over to suffering and death. And what does Peter say? Surely not, Lord. And then some of the most damning verses in the entirety of the Bible, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter's saying that this unblemished lamb who is Jesus Christ, if he's not the one to be sacrificed, then you're actually standing in the way of God. You're interposing yourself between God's will and his judgment. And so when God says an unblemished lamb, he means it because, of course, what he's pointing to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was without sin, he who was without blemish, tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. In the same way that this lamb is seen here. And so the lamb that that God is requiring uh, has to meet his standards, a lamb that is without blemish. Two, the lamb matches the requirements of the people. Now, there's a funny little passage here, which I'm going to read to you early on in uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, what does that mean? On the surface, what is God saying? If, if, you, if you live alone, you can't, if you live alone, that's too much lamb. Right, that's, that's, that's too much lamb. Or if you have a small family. And so what does he say? Sort it out with your neighbors. Right, call up your friends, sort it out, divide up the lamb, this is how it's going to be. Or go over to the neighbor's house, really, is probably what ended up happening. And, and you, you join in uh, and eat the lamb there. So that's what's happening on the surface. But what might God be saying about this? The lamb matches the requirements of the people. Now, thinking of the lamb as the sacrifice for sin, it matches your requirement for sin as, as much as you need. Do, do you understand what that means? That, that I'm not saying that some of y'all are more sinful than others. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, but what God is saying is that the blood is sufficient 
Uh, and, and there are often times when we come into a relationship with Jesus where we actually don't realize how much more we need the blood. We're a lot hungrier for it than we thought. Our, our portion is much greater than we thought it would be. I know that when I became a Christian early on, it was the summer after my fifth grade. And so I, you know, then I, I understood for the first time my need for a Savior and the nature of sin. Uh, but man, I was just getting started. Right? You know, I, 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 I was just as corrupt then as I am now, but my imagination has is, is helped me to be creative uh, in the ways that I've sinned. And so as I've gotten older, I realize my appetite for the lamb, my need for Jesus has increased to the point where I probably could eat one by myself. So that's what God is saying here. God is saying is that the lamb matches the requirements of the people. It's sufficient. It's enough. Jesus is enough. And it's till you eat your fill. It's not just a little bit of, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's lost in the Seder is that you really are supposed to, it's supposed to be a meal. Um, now we're going to get uh, to why that may not be a bad thing uh, in a little bit. But the lamb ma- matches the requirements of God, the unblemished lamb. The lamb matches the requirements of the people. It's as much as we actually need. But three, you see, if you, it's hard to keep track of. But you notice that in verse 6, it says, You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregations of Israel shall keep their lambs at twilight. And so he's telling them, thirdly, don't wait until the judgment arrives. Have the lamb on hand on this day so that when this day arrives, you can get it. I mean, how many of y'all have just waited to the last minute to get a Thanksgiving turkey? And what we see in the Exodus is I think it says that there are over 600,000 males. Lambs are a hot commodity at this time. There's a run on lamb. And so if you wait until the last minute, you may be without a lamb. And whose fault is that? It's on you. Uh, and, it's, and, and, and it's on your family. Right? I'm sure that you could pile in with somebody else. But what God is trying to say to us, I think, through this, is don't wait until the judgment arrives before you see the necessity for your lamb. Uh, the number of times uh, where I've sat with somebody who is dying... And I remember sitting with someone once who was dying, but they couldn't believe that they were dying. And uh, I tend to go for it in those situations because good, goodness, I mean, that, that's the time to talk about those things. And I often do lament uh, that we hadn't talked about those things beforehand. But, but I remember in this one case, The man that I was speaking to, he said, you know, I know that I ought to think about spiritual things, but I'd like to think about those later on. And he died within days. He died within days. And and that's the message that God is giving to us, is that now's the time to look for the lamb. Now's the time to seek it out. Now's the time uh, to take hold of it so that when God's judgment comes, what do you now have? A savior. (laughs) You've been covered with the blood. You're the one who who is now under the blood uh, of the lamb because 
all those days ago or years ago or decades ago, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you look to the Lamb of God who, took away, who takes away the sins of the world. And there may be someone here this morning who's saying, you know what, I, I just had my physical, I'm in, I'm in pretty good health, uh, and I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but I'm not really, I'm not ready, I'm not willing uh, to go ahead and take hold of him now. I'll take hold of him uh, when I need him. And those who wait for the 12th hour are the ones who are most likely to die uh, at the 11th. And as Hebrews reminds us, it's appointed once for man to die and then judgment. So God is saying here, don't wait for the judgment. Don't wait until it's too late. Uh, take hold of Jesus now. Go and get your unblemished lamb. And then fourthly, how does, what is God saying to us through the lamb? Well, he's speaking about the blood. Now, when this lamb is chosen, this unblemished lamb, what is its destiny? Death. Death. It was brought into this world in order to die. And when uh, you see the sacrifices in the Old Testament, and certainly the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, uh, the blood signifies life. Right? That, that's the life of the animal. That's the life of the individual in the Bible. And so that blood signifies the life of the lamb that has been offered up. Its death means you live. Its death means you live. Now, I forgot it. Um, um, I meant to bring my hymnal. Um, go, go home and Google, or if you've got a hymnal, um, on a green hill far away. Um, this, this really speaks... Uh, to that. Um, in fact, I'm just going to do it real quick. Let's see here. Um, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in, right? The unblemished lamb. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. And by good, it's not morally good. It means righteous. That we might go at last to heaven, saved by his most precious blood. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. Now, uh, Alexa uh, Cecil Alexander, who wrote this, uh, could have been writing from Exodus 12, right? Th that, that's the point that's being made uh, in that hymn of the necessity of the unblemished lamb, that it's enough uh, that uh, we need to take hold of him now, and the, the meaning of the blood uh, which is what actually saves us. Now, this lamb has been not only appointed to death, it's been appointed to judgment. It's been appointed to judgment. The way the Old Testament describes Jesus as Jesus being a lamb led to the slaughter. A lamb led to the slaughter. So what does it mean that the judgment falls on this lamb, and what does it mean that the judgment falls upon Jesus? Well, in the first instance, what would have happened to the Israelites if there had not been any blood on the door on the mantle? Death. And so that which would have happened to the Israelites 
happened to the lamb instead. And in the same way, that's exactly what happened on the cross with Jesus. Now, there's a, a fancy word uh, that is batted around, and, and there's no synonym for it, so we just have to use it. And you hear it sometimes uh, during uh, our communion services in the comfortable words. Propitiation. Right. Does anyone have any idea what propitiation means? I have a tattoo of it in Chinese character. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. Uh. Right. So there's another word in the Bible, and sometimes it gets translated um, perfect atonement. Sometimes it gets used as expiation. But propitiation is the more accurate term because it describes what happened on the cross with Jesus. So in the first instance, Jesus' death on the cross, well, Jesus' death on the cross does a bunch of things. Yes, it is an example, right? Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his brothers, right? It is that, but is it just that, right? Because if it is just that, we're still in trouble, right? This is not just us looking up at Jesus saying, wasn't that nice of him? No, it was also a satisfaction for the sins of the world, right? It was the sacrifice for sin. But if it's that, it also must also mean that the judgment of God the Father falls on Jesus. And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, if you remember the, the hymn, In Christ Alone. And a lot of people don't like that little bit. In fact, there was a big controversy a couple years ago where a mainline denomination wanted to include it in their hymnal, and they asked Stuart Townen, who wrote the words, if he would be willing to allow them to alter it uh, in order to include it. And good for him, he said no, because it would rob the cross of its glory and make the cross into something that it's not. It would make the cross deficient. And so what does it mean that on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied? It's called justice. It's called God's judgment. I mean, one of the things that I rest in as a Christian is that at the end of the day, when God does finally come in judgment, nobody's getting away with anything. Isn't, I, mean, I rejoice on the one, now it's, it's, it's a fearful thing, because I know I'm included in that, uh, but don't you rejoice to know that there's one day where hunger will be eradicated and there'll be peace? There'll be no more murder. There'll be no more genocide. There'll be no more hate. No more masks, right? God's wrath is going to be poured out on all of that. But more specifically, it's going to be poured out on everybody who doesn't what? hide themselves under the blood because we're just as guilty as they are, except that which we deserve has been taken on by who? And so it's no wonder when, G what does Jesus cry from the cross that everyone sort of thinks, what in the world does that mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's in that moment that Jesus not only feels all the sin of the world, my sin alone gobbles up the entire lamb. But he also feels the judgment of the Father visited upon him for everybody. 
That same judgment that's going to visit the world is what Jesus experienced upon the cross. He satisfied the judgment of God. He stood in our stead. Jesus was not only appointed for death, he was appointed for judgment. And his blood was poured out for us. There's that beautiful uh, passage in Revelation where John is looking and they're all these clothed in white. And John says, uh, well, he's asked, who are they? And he said, sir, you know. Uh, and he said, and the, the angel said, those are they who have come through the great tribulation who have what? Washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Right, that's us. Right, that's us. Now, when you wash your robes in the blood, they come out clean. Right? The, it, they're washed. Uh, you know, sin has left a crimson stain, but God makes it white as snow. And so the importance of, of the blood. The lamb must match the requirements of God. The lamb matches the requirements of the people. God said, don't wait until the judgment arrives to see your need for the lamb. And then finally, the blood of the lamb uh, that is spilled for us, the lamb that is appointed to death and also judgment. Now let's fast forward to that night in the upper room where Jesus and his disciples were. And there was a lot going on. Uh, it was after supper. And so the table was cleared. And then Jesus takes a cup, he takes bread, he takes a cup, and he passes it around and basically is doing the Passover meal over again. And so the, the disciples must say, we just did this. I mean, different words, but, but basically this is kind of how, how the feast works. And, and he's doing it all, all over again. Now we know that in that moment, Jesus is doing a couple things. One, obviously, he's pointing back to Exodus 12, right? This is what they've been commanded to do. And the youngest disciple would have asked, what does all of this mean? And they would have answered. So they're pointing back to Exodus 12, but also they're pointing toward the ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb, right, the, that we see in Revelation. So uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, remembering me until I come again. All right, that's happening. But what I don't want us to lose is what's happening in the moment of this after-dinner reenactment. Because there's the cup, there's the unleavened bread, but where's the lamb? Well, he's right there. He's right there. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when we come to the table, uh, you know, we don't reenact the Passover once a year as Christians, we, we hearken back to Exodus 12 every time we come to the table and we declare that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover that has been sacrificed for us once and for all. Now, as I said before, the Passover feast has not really become a feast. It's 
you know, eat before you go. Um, but it's, it's not, and in the same way, when we come to the table, um, how many of y'all are absolutely satisfied after communion? And just like, couldn't touch another morsel. <laughs> no, if anything, I actually think about it like, this is just measly. This is just, this is a meager, I mean, it's really, to call it a supper uh, is, is overstatement. Uh, so why is it that we just take a taste of the bread and we just take a taste of, of the cup? Well, for all you who like to go to fancy restaurants, what are, what are, sometimes you get surprised by the chef. And even before your first course is brought out, what's brought out? Who's a food snob like me? It's a French term. An amuse-bouche, right? And it's normally something real teeny tiny. And, and, and what does it mean? Well, amuse-bouche, it, 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 it means to get your appetite going. It means to, to get your taste buds working and, and for you to begin to anticipate looking for the full meal. And that's what Holy Communion is. Now, I'm never going to put in the bulletin amuse-bouche, right? I'm not going to do that. Although, of all the places I might be able to get away with it, it would be the Advent. Uh, but that's really what the Lord's Supper is. It points back, it points to the present reality, but ultimately it points to the coming reality when we uh, get to see what John saw in Revelation, where we see what's upon the throne? The Lamb. Behold the Lamb upon the throne. That's what we're looking forward to. And so as we look, continue to look at Exodus, Exodus 12 does a great job of showing us uh, God's pictures uh, for our redemption. And I hope as you think on Exodus 12 that you will uh, think more about what God is saying than just what seems to be on the surface. Questions, comments, concerns? Mm. Clark. Yes, I would, I would use that without... Um, yeah, um, substitutionary atonement or even penal substitution uh, are things that are theological terms that are absolutely essential to understanding what happened on the cross with Jesus. And so substitutionary atonement makes a little bit more sense that Jesus was our substitute, like the lamb in chapter 12. Uh, penal substitution brings in the idea of God's judgment uh, against the Lord Jesus, who was unblemished. He did nothing to deserve it, but took uh, the burden upon himself. And to take substitutionary atonement out, to take penal substitution out, is to rob the cross of its glory. And it turns out that that kind of Jesus is not enough to save. Oh, they were banging. They were bang we know that they were banging on the door because, um, and God shut it. You know, that, that, that's a frightening thing. When I was a little boy, we had, um, you know, that's the funny thing about so many of these biblical images have been so domesticated that, that we, you know, as terrifying as this is, it rem reminds us that God is real. And, and when he says something, he means it. 
And even though we may not feel that he's doing anything about it now, that's only because God in his mercy is staying his hand. And when he unleashes it, it's not going to be good. So when I was a little boy, um, you know, I remember uh, the church that I went to had a nursery and it was decorated with Noah's Ark theme, right? Rainbows everywhere and animals and things like that. And I even remember my mom had a little Noah's Ark thing that, that was so nice and cuddly and all of that. And then I found on our bookshelf, Gustave Doré's engravings of Noah and the Flood. It was awful. I mean, there's this, the one that I remember, I haven't seen it since then, but the one that I remember um, is the mother going under the water and holding her infant child up on the rock that is just barely above the water. And above them is another rock outcropping. And it's a mother lion and her cub looking down hungrily at the baby. That doesn't make it into Sunday school curriculum. Right? It, but that captures more the reality of what the flood was actually like. And even if you want to accentuate the positive, can you imagine life on the ark? Ugh. Just, the, I mean, not just the, but, you know, are you, are you going to go below decks to deal with those animals that are going to eat you? Like every night going to bed and thinking what lurks beneath you and whether it might get out and get you? Oh, and that's the best case scenario. I mean, all you can do is trust the Lord. Okay, anybody else? So go home and look up Gustave Doré's engravings uh, and print them out for your children to color. Okay, or grandchildren. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, plenteous redemption in you is found. And we pray that we would not wait until the hour of judgment, that Lord, we would lay hold of the Lamb Jesus Christ now and that we would be covered uh, by his blood. And Lord, that we might know what it means to be forgiven and to have new life in him. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.